Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Lord, I'm reminded um, as we prepare to study your word, I'm reminded of your great love for us. And I pray, God, that we would um, know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that, that you're, you're, you love us greatly because you paid a great debt. And you gave your life so that we could have life. You sought after us. You found us when we were lost, and you saved us. Father, even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, you came to us. You accept us. You're always near us. I pray, Father, for anyone this morning who feels far away, feels separated or distanced, either as a result of their sin or some difficult circumstances that are going on in their life or because of things that have happened to them in the past, Lord. I pray, God, that you would reveal to them that you're a loving God who desires to know them more intimately today. Father, help us to trust in you. Help us to follow after you as disciples. Lord, that we may live and walk in the right way. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, I ask God that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. I also want to pray for our missionaries. I think of Milan and Zita in Czech Republic and um, Beverly in Uganda and all those who serve with her. We think of our missionaries in Peru, Darwin and Annie, Lord, and we know that they've been recovering from some health issues, and we pray, God, that you continue to use them mightily there. Pray for Nolan and Marie and, and Juarez, Lord, as Nolan has lost his brother a couple weeks ago and will be coming here to be, attend the memorial service, Lord. We just pray a blessing over them and travel safeties and mercies, Lord, and that he would have an awesome time at the memorial service sharing and witnessing to his family once again about your great love for them that he would use this opportunity we pray for all the vbs things that are going on with the ministries in Juarez right now and pray god you'd continue to provide for their needs or we also pray for uh, pastor jim tolson at the e-free church and all of our brothers and sisters there lord who regularly worship there and fellowship there and we pray a blessing upon their two services there this morning. We ask, God, that you would meet the needs of the people there like you meet the needs here. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would um, convict, instruct, and even rebuke. And I pray, God, that as we study your word here this morning, that you would bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1, chapter 15, it says in in verse 15, it says, or in chapter 15, it says, Then all the tax collectors... And the sinners, and tax collectors are sinners too, we know that. But then all the tax collectors and all the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Of course, that's speaking about Jesus. And and we know that at this time, Jesus is well on his way to to Jerusalem, leaving the Sea of Galilee region, making his way through the different cities and villages, preaching and teaching and healing and empowering his disciples to do the same preparing them for the time when they're going to be without him. After we know that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. He'll be betrayed by one of his own. He'll be crucified, but we also know that he'll rise again in three days to new life. But at this time, they're drawing near to him, these tax collectors, these sinners, the outcasts of society. And and we know exactly how the Pharisees felt about this. And in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees describes these religious leaders, they complain, saying about Jesus, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Eats with them. And it's important to point out As we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, we know this to be true. We've seen the contrast between Jesus Christ and his ministry and and the the, the so-called ministry of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers at this time in this day. But it's important to point out as we go through this that we see again that Jesus attracted sinners because he loved them. We've got to think about this in relationship to our own lives, guys. Not only are we called to to um, example um, the way Christ lived and to live according to his word, but we need, to, we need to emulate his ministry. And he attracted sinners because he loved them, while in contrast, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees who were repulsed by sinners repelled them. Now think about that. If you love people, 
They're going to be drawn to you. If you're repulsed by people, what do you think they want to have? They won't want to have anything to do with you, with us, with our Savior, with our Lord. And these quote-unquote tax collectors and sinners spoken of in these first verses here, they wanted to be near Jesus because he loved them, but also because he spoke the truth to them in love. Right? There's this movement going on in the church today that somehow believes, that thinks that it's, it's unloving to speak the truth. There's this, this confusion between, you've heard me say it, between tolerance and grace. And I've told you God is gracious, but he's also intolerant. He's intolerant of sin. He's gracious. And we're called to be the same. And Jesus was that way. He loved people and he spoke the truth to them. And they wanted to be near him because of this. Not simply because he catered to them or he somehow compromised his message. In fact, we know that Jesus had just previously in the chapter we read about it a couple weeks ago, he had just challenged people as he had challenged us regarding discipleship. And commitment saying, listen, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to lay down your life. Take up your cross. Forget about your dreams. Forget about your desires, your wants, your will. It has to be about mine. That's what a true disciple is. And there's a cost to discipleship. And yet what we see Jesus speaking this message, of uh, uh, this truthful message in love, people still were drawn to him. The sinners and the tax collectors drew near to him. Even though he challenged them, it did not drive them away. Why? Because he knew. They knew. They knew that Jesus cared for them. He was compassionate. And so so as Jesus showed these, quote-unquote, sinners compassion and tried to help them, we see in contrast that the scribes and and the Pharisees criticized. They, They condemned the people. And in light of this, we see that even though these religious leaders had a a knowledge of the Mosaic law, they were the experts in in the religious things, and even though they even had a desire for personal purity, maybe outwardly, as Jesus convicted them and condemned them for their lack of inward purity, but they had a desire, nevertheless, they had a desire for personal purity, they still had no love for those who were lost. And that's what we see in these first two verses. No love for those who were lost. So when we look at this difference between Jesus and these religious leaders, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of people are we? What kind of, what kind of church are we? Do we want to be? Do we attract the sinners without compromising the gospel message of Jesus, which calls people to confess their sins and then to turn away from their sins and to follow Jesus, living a path, living a life of righteousness? Do we show people compassion and try to help them? Or are we like these religious leaders in that we have this form of godliness, in that we know God's Word and even, and even live holy lives, but yet we deny the power of God because we have no love for the sinner who is lost? And we dismiss the gospel message which declares ultimately a salvation from sin and salvation by, from death by grace through faith in Jesus for, the Bible says, for whosoever will believe. For whosoever will believe. And as we continue to study through this chapter and read about these three parables, three parables here, one of the the lost sheep, the one of the lost coin, and then of course the one of the prodigal son, these three parables that Jesus ultimately speaks in, in, in is a response. These, these parables, as we study them in context, we see in verses, because of verses 1 and 2, that they're given as a response to the, to the attitudes, to the, to the heart of condemnation of the Pharisees. And so Jesus speaks these in response who were complaining about Jesus ultimately receiving and eating with sinners. Disgusted they were by this. In light of this, I want to point out that there are three words that summarize the main message if you're taking notes this morning. Three words, simple words, lost, found, and rejoicing. They all kind of go together, right? Have you ever lost something? The other day, oh man, I had, I had a trial. The enemy was against me. As somebody else. My, my, I went on vacation and when I came back, I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew about it. My daughter called me, texted me, Dad, the washing machine broke. Who's ever dealt with a broken washing machine? Well, the drain valve was bad. The pump was bad. And so there's like five days of dirty water 
laundry water sitting in the washing machine. Give you an idea of what that smelled like, what that looked like when I got home. Anyway, so I finally get the part here. I'm working on it this week. I put it all together, and water's leaking everywhere. And um, in the process of that, it had been, you know, two or three days for the part to get here, and I put everything nicely in little Tupperware containers, all the screws as I'd torn it apart and put it in, and, and I lost a part. I lost a part. And guys, you know it. My wife's wanting to help. She's there. Can I help if I only knew what to do? And I've got water everywhere, and it's stinky, and I can't find the part, and I'm wanting to tell my wife, just leave me be. <laughs> I'm wanting to throw tools. But anyway, I finally, I finally find the part that I had lost. And you know what I did? I rejoiced. And these things always go together. If you've lost it and you've found it, then there's this rejoicing no matter what it is. And that's what these parables teach us. Three main things, lost, found, and rejoicing. And we know that Jesus spoke these parables ultimately to answer these accusations of the scribes and the Pharisees who were disgusted by Jesus' behavior and complained about him here in verse 2 saying this. Hold on. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And we think, oh man, how can, how can they say that? How can they do that? But yet, that can be the attitude of us in the church today. We get a little bit of religion, right? And lose sight of the relationship that we have with Christ and think that we're somehow now better than those around us who are still in the world and still sinning. And, and oh my gosh. And you know what? Relationship with Christ brings us into relationship with others. Religion in the true man-made sense, brings forth division. And that's where these guys were at. They were disgusted with this. In light of this, there's, there's no doubt that the, these religious leaders believed that it was not a good thing to welcome these outcasts, to teach them, and to even eat with them. But these religious leaders, listen, they did not understand this. They did not understand that Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost, as we're told in the Gospel of Mark, over and over again. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that are lost. And more importantly, and, and this is something we need to look at inside of our own selves, more importantly, they lacked objectivity. They lacked objectivity and they were blind because of that to the fact that they themselves were among those whom they were despising, the sinner, those who were lost. And this next chapter makes it clear that there is one message of salvation for all. One message of salvation for all. And it is that God welcomes and forgives all repentant sinners. All. But these parables also reveal that there are two aspects of God's, to God's salvation. Hear what I'm saying. It also reveals to us that there are two aspects of God's salvation. There is the sovereignty of God, which is illustrated, as we'll read, by the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep and by the woman who searches for the lost coin. But there is also a second aspect to God's salvation, which is our responsibility. God's sovereignty and our responsibility, which is seen or evident by the prodigal son in the last parable who, was, who willingly at one point came to, he says it came to himself, we'll talk about that, but willingly repented, and then what did he do? He went back home. Sovereignty of God and our responsibility to respond to the work that God does. Now, the overlying theme of this chapter, as I kind of already highlighted, is joy. It's rejoicing. And that's an encouraging thing for us this morning because we're partakers of this. The overall theme is rejoicing and joy. And in light of this, we see that there are also three different types of joy that are involved in salvation, whether it's our own or of someone else's. And about this topic of joy, C.S. Lewis, in, his, in a book that is entitled, one of his books entitled Letters to Malcolm, he wrote and he said this. He said, joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that. Joy is the serious business of heaven, and the serious business of joy is a business that you and I have been called to work in. We've been employed in the business of joy to share the gospel message, to be witnesses, to testify of who Jesus is. The Bible says that we're to proclaim the good news message. 
And when we do so, we enter into the business of joy, the business of heaven. So in verse 3, we read on in these first two parables. It says, so he, Jesus, spoke this parable to them, saying, remember, as a response, he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Of course, it's a rhetorical question, and we know the answer from the, the, the words that Jesus goes on to speak, and these guys knew it too. Any one of them would do this. And once again, Jesus takes the, 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 the temporal, the practical, the relatable into the eternal, into the spiritual, and that's where we're going with it this morning. And, and he says, he goes on, and he says, when he has found it, he, he lays it then on his shoulder, and he rejoices, because what was lost has been found. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or verse 8, Jesus goes on with a second example, a second illustration. He says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, then does not light a lamp? Search, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, verse 9, she calls all of her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me for I have found that peace which I have lost. That's what I did when I found the peace. I don't want to tell you how I found it or where I found it, but I found it. And you know what I said to my wife? I said, I found it right here. And that was like after 30 minutes of, 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 of searching and going, well, anyway. <laughs> but there was rejoicing, and I wanted my wife to partake with it. The very moment I wanted, before that, I wanted to get rid of her. Then I wanted her to be there to partake in my joy. But likewise, Jesus says in verse 10, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, one sinner who repents. So these first verses, verses 3 to 10, is the, 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 the joy of finding, right? And the fact that Jesus used two different parables to illustrate the same point, we might wonder why, but what it does for us, if we understand some cultural things of significance, we understand that the, Jesus uses two different parables to illustrate the same point in order to demonstrate to us how God cares for every person who is in the crowd. God cares for every person who is in the crowd. You see, the story about the lost sheep, that would have specifically been, been an opportunity to speak to the men and the boys in the crowd who could best relate to, to shepherds and sheep. This was, this was something the guys did traditionally. The men did. They were the shepherds. They could relate to this. And the story about the lost coin, which was one of ten coins, that would have best spoken to the women, to the ladies, to the girls in the crowd. Because what's being spoken of here, the ten silver coins, it was really a reference to coins that were bound together. In a headdress, you may have seen that before. A headdress that would be worn by these, by these ladies and the, the ten coins would be hanging down for them. And, and that headdress was really a dowry for a woman to wear on her forehead on her wedding day. It was given to her by her father. And it was typically worn every day then after that. In the light of this, we should be reminded and encouraged by the fact that God also cares about every single person, every single one of us who is here today. Men, women, children alike. And maybe you don't think or feel like God cares about you this morning. I think we've all felt like that at times. But it's clear from what we read here in the verses that God wants you to know, that God wants us to know that we're valuable to Him. And that His love for us does not hinge on whether or not we have been foolish or, we are, or, or whether or not we're doing foolish things. And that's such a comforting thing to be reminded of. Notice that in the first parable, the two main characters, what are they? We have a shepherd and a lost sheep. That's the main characters. And sheep, which are foolish, they have a, a natural tendency to go, to, to go astray. One time I was in Uganda, we did a pastor's conference specifically on that whole thing. The ministry of the shepherd, as I was teaching these pastors. And I did a lot of research about sheep. And sheep are foolish, Sheep are stupid. I never want to be a shepherd of sheep. And sheep... 
Paul. <laughs> but they have, sheep, <laughs> sheep have this natural tendency to go astray, to get lost, among other things. And that's why they need a shepherd. Cows, you just turn out into the pasture and you let them go and you come and collect them at the end of the year. Not so with sheep. Sheep will die. They'll fall down and they can't get back up. In the light of this, we see how this parable illustrates for us how sinners, we're the sheep in case you didn't get it, mainly you and I, that we are like the sheep spoken of in this parable. And the scribes and the Pharisees who have been disgusted with Jesus for receiving and eating with sinners and with tax collectors would have had no problem, get this, because Jesus is speaking to them, they would have had no problem at this point at seeing these people whom Jesus had come to, had come to Jesus as lost sheep. Oh yeah, they're a bunch of sheep, stupid sheep. However, they would have never thought about applying this imagery to themselves. That's key. They would have no problem with Jesus referring to sinners as sheep, but they would have never, ever related it to themselves. Nevertheless, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 6, makes it clear that all of us have sinned, and all of us, he says, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned our own way, and this includes every, quote-unquote, religious and self-righteous person. Now, according to the Mosaic Law, when you begin to study it out in, 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 in the Old Testament, what you come to find out is that a shepherd was ultimately responsible and liable for every single sheep that was in his care and had been trusted to him. And so if a, if, a, if a sheep was to come up missing, the shepherd ultimately had to personally pay for that sheep unless... He could prove somehow that it was killed by a predator. That was the only exception. And, and, and this explains why the shepherd would leave his entire flock to go and search for the one that was missing. And it explains then why he would then rejoice when he found it. And because the shepherd would go and seek after the one lost sheep, it provided um, for the, for, it proved, excuse me, that, that every sheep was valuable. Every sheep was precious to the shepherd. And the cool thing about this parable is that we, if we, the sinners, are the lost sheep, then we can then come to the conclusion that Jesus must be the shepherd in this picture, in this illustration, in this parable. And we know that Jesus regularly referred to himself as the shepherd. In fact, he called himself the good shepherd. And being our shepherd, Jesus will come and he will find us when we go astray. Listen to that this morning. Remember that, that when we go astray, which is our natural tendency, the Bible tells us that God, our Father in heaven, and, and His Son, Jesus Christ, is going to come searching for us. And for me, that's a comforting hope, not only for myself, but I have people I love who are astray right now. You have people who you love who are that lost sheep. And you know what God's doing right now? He's out there looking for them so that he might put them on his shoulder and bring them back, that which is lost, so it can be found. He'll come and find us when we go astray, when we go our own way, when we get lost. And the other point that, that, that Jesus emphasizes in this parable when we see the lost being found is this rejoicing that comes as a result of finding and in, the, in these verses, in verses 5 through 7 of this parable, Jesus really lists three different expressions of joy. Did you catch that? Three different expressions of joy. The first joy is obviously the, the, the joy of the shepherd, the, the, the joy that the shepherd received when he had found his lost sheep. I can imagine it. I can picture it. He's wandering around. Who knows how long it's taken? And he's wandering through the wilderness, and off in the distance he sees this this movement. And he thinks, oh, maybe that's my sheep. Maybe it's a predator. He doesn't know. And as, as, as he draws near, it becomes evident that, yes, it is a sheep. It's the one that I've lost. And, and joy begins to fill his heart. And as he goes and he's able to place his hands upon the sheep that was lost, putting on his shoulders to care back, you can, ex you can imagine the joy that filled his heart. When that part I found, which was hanging literally and here's a confession. It was hanging by the end of the wire that I left it attached to inside the washing machine. 
When I saw that, first of all, I felt stupid, but then I, I, felt, I felt that joy welling up because then I could fix what was broken. I could restore it. And that's what God wants to do, and that's what the shepherd does. There's this restoration. There's this joy because it's protected. It's alive. It's okay. And it's the joy of the shepherd. And, it's, and, and this is really, guys, it's speaking. Think about it. It's the joy this joy of the shepherd, it's speaking about the joy, the kind of joy that fills God's heart when one of us who is lost and has gone our own way is found and is saved. God has that kind of joy over us. The second expression of joy is identified in verse 6, and it's, 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 it's from this call of the shepherd to his friends to rejoice with him over the good news that the lost sheep has been found. It's this partaking in, this partaking of. And this is the joy I think that we all feel when we see or hear about that, a person putting their faith in Jesus and becoming a part of, the, of God's family, one, one we love who is restored. When that which is lost is found. A child, a spouse, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. But guys, that joy is, is, is equal and the same to, to partake of, even when it's someone we don't know. When you guys share with me about someone I don't know who you know who's given their life to the Lord, there's a joy that fills my heart. And we see that as a second expression of joy in this parable when, when the, the shepherd shares and there's rejoicing with others around them. Now the third expression of joy is spoken of in verse 7, it's the joy in heaven. I think we don't think about this often. But there's an importance to it that we don't, we don't often relate to. And it's this joy in heaven. Literally, it says the rejoicing of the angels. And why do you think the angels rejoice? For the same reason we do, but all the more so. Listen, angels know better than we do of what we are saved from and what we are saved to when we repent and believe. They know hell and they know heaven. We just get a glimpse of it of what it's going to be like. Think about the rejoicing of knowing what hell is really like and what heaven is really like and when one who is saved from hell, that which is lost and is found and is then destined to for heaven for, for eternal life and all the benefits that go there with it and yet the angels, they're like, they're throwing a party when that which is lost has been found. And three expressions of joy when a person who is lost is found. But guys, there's also a fourth that is not mentioned because it should be obvious. And it's the joy of the lost sheep who has been found. And for those of us who, have, who, who were lost and have been found, we know that there is no greater joy than the joy of our salvation. The Bible talks about it. Because the joy that comes from our salvation is the fullness of joy that comes from being brought back into the presence of the shepherd. Back into the presence of our heavenly father. The place from which we were lost. Now the parable of the woman, as we continue on and look at the second parable, the parable of the woman who had lost the one of her, of her ten silver coins, like which I said is a reference to, the, to that wedding headdress that she would receive from her father on her wedding day, is similar to the parable of the lost sheep. It's similar, right? In that, something which was of great value had been lost, and the, and, and, and the person to whom the lost thing belonged found it, and then there was great rejoicing. That's what's similar between these two parables. But the, there's something that's different, too, in this second parable. And the thing that is different about this parable is the emphasis that's put on the thoroughness of the search. Okay? The emphasis, there's details to it. In the first one, we're left to imagine the journey that takes place. But in this parable, it's accounted for us. Notice in verse 8 that the woman, realizing that one of her coins was lost, imagine she woke up in the morning and looked dimly into her shiny piece of steel or whatever, and they didn't have mirrors like we do, and she, she realized, she's, she thought, oh no, one of them's gone. And upon so, she immediately lit the lamp, it says, and then swept the house and searched carefully until she found it. The thoroughness of the search, the effort that was put forth to it, and this is because the silver coins, which were just ornaments on the headdress, also served as an indicator in this culture of the woman's status. Showing her wealth, but also her faithfulness to her husband. 
And so this coin meant more to her than just the value of the, of the silver itself. And for her to lose it would, would mean that she would be losing face in her community and it would become a, she would become a shameful thing before her husband, culturally speaking. Who has ever lost their wedding ring? How'd you feel? It's like that. It's not that you're like, oh, I just lost the diamond and the gold. You lost what it's, it was a, a certain separation from what it meant, what it stood for, the value behind the meaning. The same here. In this, in this great effort that was put into finding this valuable coin that had been lost, it points out two things when we realize that, that we, the sinner, are the lost coin, like the shepherd Going for the sheep that was lost, us, the sinner, here in this parable, the coin of great value, is us. And the things that it points out, the two things that it points out, the first is that, is that we're very precious. Do you see that? That we're very precious and of great value to God. But the second thing is the fact that God puts forth great effort. God puts forth great effort and great willingness and will go to great lengths to recover that which has been lost to him. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God came all the way from heaven. Quite a journey. God came all the way from heaven to find us. To find us. Then he humbled himself, taking the form of a man, and he paid the price to redeem us back to himself by giving his own life as he suffered and died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And he did all this, the Bible tells us why, for the joy. It says he did it for the joy, the Bible teaches us. The joy of finding us, the joy of restoring us back to him. And it's worth pointing out that these two parables help us understand what it means to be lost. You ever thought about that in relationship to yourself? What does it mean to be lost? These parables teach us to begin with, when something is lost, it's simply not in its right place. Right? When something is lost, it's not in its right place. And just like the sheep belong to the flock... Where does the sheep belong? In the flock. And just like the coin belonged together on the chain with the other coins, it was, it was, when it was lost, it wasn't in its right place. You and I, the sheep and the coin, you and I belong in our right place. What is that? In fellowship, in relationship with God. That's our right place. But these parables also help us to understand what it means to be found. What it means to be lost, but what it also means to be found, which simply means that we're brought back into the right place, the place that we were intended to be, the place that we were designed to be, the place that we were created to be, literally reconciled to God. And what does that mean? We're out of danger. What does that mean? We're back in the place where life now has purpose, where life has meaning. And I think it's easy for us to read these two parables today, this morning, and, and really kind of take their message for granted. But when we break it down like this, we see that this message is an awesome message. It's an amazing message. It's a mind-blowing message when we see what God did for us. Think about it. <clears throat> Jesus was saying that God actually searches for lost sinners. That's what Jesus was speaking to these self-righteous and disgusted Pharisees when they saw Sinners coming to Jesus, and Jesus saying, listen, God searches after these people. God searches after sinners. Literally, for those of us who have been separated from God because of our foolish ways. It's not like you just had, you know, the wrong directions from Google Map. <laughs> I've been lost like that. But, the, but what this is talking about, our loss is a, is a willful loss. It's because of our foolishness, because of our rebellious ways, because of our selfish desire ways. And lots of times we think about that and we're like, think about it sometimes. Let them, let them wander around for a little while. Once they fall off a cliff, then they'll, you know, we, we think about getting what you deserve when we think about that kind of a thing. When people do dumb things, they should receive a punishment for that, Right? But when we put this in the context of God, God searches after sinners. 
those of us who are foolish and have got lost, those of us who have rebelled and got lost, those of us who had exercised our selfishness and have got lost. Nevertheless, God comes searching after us. Why? Because he loves us. He considers us of a great value to, to him. We're valuable. And because of his desire, what's his desire? His desire is to restore us back to himself. And this is the wonderful truth about God. When this, this wonderful truth about God is not something I think that most people really consider. In fact, I think many people do believe that God is searching after them, but it's to, it's to judge them, to condemn them, right? And they're hiding themselves from God under that weight of condemnation that they feel. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God's always been seeking after His lost children. Think about it. God's always been seeking after His lost children. We who belong to them. And we can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 and we read the account about Adam and Eve, the first two humans, but more importantly, the first two sinners who rebelled against God and even then tried to hide themselves from God. But God knowing, the Bible tells us, what Adam and Eve had done, He came looking for them. Why? Because He wanted to get them, right? <laughs> no. He came looking for them, not to punish them, but to cover them. To restore them back to Himself. So the fact of the matter is, is God comes searching for us. God searches for us. Why? Because He is a merciful and gracious Father who loves us. Listen, in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14, it says this. Meditate on these words this morning. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. I don't know about you, but that caused me just wants to shout out, Amen. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Nor has He punished us according to our iniquities. For as, as, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are, we are dust. So without a doubt, there is a joy in finding but there is also a joy in returning. And this is pointed out in the parable of the prodigal son, verse 11. It says, Then he said, A certain man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them, so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered all together. And journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. He is in heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But what? But when... He was still a great way off. His father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this my son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, 
his older brother, his older son, excuse me, was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who devoted your lively, who has devoted your livelihood devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. And it was right, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, we refer to this story, like I've mentioned already, as the prodigal, as the parable of the prodigal son. And the word prodigal in the Greek is the word astios, which, which literally means riotous or, or wastefulness. And, and clearly this young man, he was these things. He was very riotous. He was very wasteful in his prodigal living. But the, the parable could also, I think, more appropriately be called the parable of the loving father, don't you think? Because really the main emphasis is, is on the compassion, on the graciousness of the father more than it is on the sinfulness of the son. And then like the, the shepherd and the woman in the two previous parables, the father in this parable did not go out to seek the son. But it was the memory. It was the memory of his father's goodness spoken of in verse 17 that ultimately bought, brought this boy to the place of repentance, to the son of the place of repentance, and ultimately into the place of forgiveness. And such is the case for us with God. Remember in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 it says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? Now as I mentioned when we began this morning, these three parables speak of the two aspects of God's salvation. The first points to the first two points to the sovereignty of God and how God's will is that that and God's will and desire is to seek and to save those who are lost, right? And, and, if, and let me point out, if it was not first for God's will to seek and save us, then none of us would ever be saved, right? But this last parable illustrates the second aspect of salvation, which is conditional upon the first, but it's, it is our responsibility to respond to God and to receive His gift, and uh, the, the, to receive the gift of His grace and the gift of His salvation. Our responsibility to respond is seen here in the second parable. And in the story, there are three experiences that I want to point out quickly as we close. Three experiences of the younger son that I want us to key in. The first experience is his rebellion. I think we all relate to that. And according to Jewish law, if you research it, a father could distribute his wealth as an inheritance to his son while he was still alive if he wished to do so. So it was perfectly legal for the younger son to ask for his share of the estate and even to go and sell it to do whatever he wanted with it afterwards, even if his father was still alive. But it certainly was not a very loving thing for him to do, was it? In fact, listen, it was as though he was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. That's what he was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. Why? So that I can have what I want, go where I want, and do what I want without answering to you. And in light of this, we can see that this request for his portion of his inheritance was more than a desire to have the portions of his good that he was in to inherit. Rather, his desire was for rebellion. It was an act of rebellion as this young man desired to be out from underneath his father's home, out from underneath his father's authority, to be his own man, right? And it's been rightly said, listen, it's been rightly said that a, a man's worst difficulties begin when he's able to do just as he likes. A man's worst difficulties begin when he's able to do just as he likes. And the fact of the matter is, is we are always heading for trouble whenever we value things more than people, pleasure more than duty, and distant scenes more than the blessings that we have right here at home. 
rebellion. The second experience we see this prodigal son go through is repentance. Thank God for repentance. There's rebellion and there's repentance. And to repent simply means to change one's mind. Furthermore, the changing of the mind has to be followed with the action of turning around from the direction that you're going if it's true repentance because true repentance is heading a different direction. I was going this way and now I'm going this way. This young man was headed off into the, doing what he wanted to do and, 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 and away from his father home and when he repented, he turned around and he came back. And this is exactly what the young man did. After, look, after he realized in verse 16, look there with me, just how bad he'd life, his life had become. You ever been there? Oh, I messed it up really bad. And we can just be remorseful. The Bible says that there's a, there's a, a, a remorse that can come from the actions that we've, we've, we've chosen when we, we've, when we are reaping the consequences of our decisions. That's not the same as repentance. He, he was more than remorseful, but he, he, he realized just how life had, he'd be, bad his life had become, but he also realized and remembered how good his life had been when he was in his father's house also. In light of this, we, can, we should consider verse 17, which tells us that at that time, at this time, I mean, this is, this is amazing to me, that at this time, the rebellious son, it said, quote, unquote, he came to himself. You ever had those moments? You come to yourself, a realization of, of who you've become, where you're at, and what you've done. He came to himself, which suggests that up to this point, he'd not really been himself. And the point is, listen, the point is, sin and rebellion will paralyze the very image of God that is within us and change us into something we were never created to be and into something or someone we really don't want to be. What does that sin and rebellion? The Bible says we've been created into the very image of God. And when we sin, we're not ourselves. We're not that created thing that God has made us into. But when we get like this young man, these Holy Spirit-inspired moments of clarity through conviction and realize where we have gone to and what we've really been doing and what we have done to ourselves and to others around us as a result of our sin and of our rebellion, when we realize that what we thought, what we wanted was not what we expected it would be, we must choose to turn away. We must choose to turn away and turn back to the place that we had fallen from. We must repent. Jan and Brent, if you want to come up, we're going to end with this, the last experience. And in the last experience we see this young man go through is again this rejoicing. There's this rejoicing over his return. And it's, and it's in these verses, verses 20 through 24, that Jesus, I think, directly He's kind of being gentle with the Pharisees and these, these disgusted religious leaders at this point, and he's speaking to them. But at this point, it's like a gut punch. It's like, okay, listen, Pharisees. And I think he's directly answering the accusation of the scribes and the Pharisees, the accusation they made back in verse 2 about him having received sinners, because in these verses, we're told that the father not only ran to welcome and ran to receive his wayward son back with open arms, we're told that that the father also honored the boy. He honored the boy's homecoming by preparing a great feast and then inviting the whole village to come and attend. I want to point out in verse 21 that the son, the son even as he, as he began to speak his confession, but if you look at verse 22, it's as if the father, who was so overjoyed by his son returned, did not even allow the son to continue to labor on in his confession. It's almost like he was interrupted. It's like he's there, he's hugging him, he's loving him, his son's confessing, he turns to his servants and he's going, take care of business. And in doing so, he forgave him, he clothed him with a robe, he put a ring on his finger, he put sandals on his feet, and then he ordered the celebration to begin. Why? It says, for his son who had been dead is alive. For a son who had been lost is found. And the father in this parable clearly illustrates for us, guys, the attitude of our heavenly father towards sinners. And I don't want to get into too much, but there's the, 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 the son who remained. And that's given to us as a contrast. It's not a direct representation of the, of the Pharisees, but it reveals their attitude. How can you receive this son who has been this way to you, these sinners, these tax collectors? 
And we got to be careful and see what kind of heart we have. Do we have the heart of our Father in heaven? Or we have the heart of the Pharisees, of the Son who was jealous and, and, and disgusted about his brother's return? Because of what he had done. He had done all these things. And so we see the attitude of our Heavenly Father towards sinners illustrated to those who repent. Remember, guys, God is rich in his mercy and in his grace and in his great love towards us. And I'll close with this, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. And you he made alive. Us who were dead. And now we're alive. And you and we he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience among, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, here's the key, just as others. We're just like those who are still out there who are dead, just like those who are lost, We're just like them. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together. And he has made us to sit in the heavenly places of Jesus Christ that are in the ages to come. Why? So that he might show his exceeding riches to us and through us to those who are still lost, to those who are still dead. And he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so all of this is possible because his son Jesus, because of his son Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins upon the cross at Calvary. And listen, guys, I'll end with this last thought. And no matter, no matter what people think, we're not saved by God's love. You hear me this morning? We're not saved by God's love. How do I know that? It says God loves the whole world, and yet we know that the whole world's not going to be saved. But we are saved by God's grace. And you know what grace is? Grace is love that pays the price. And we've been called into the business, the serious business of joy, and that cannot be apart from grace. And our own willingness to lay down our lives and pay the price and be with those who others might see as disgusting or unwanted or unlovable. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time together this morning. Thank you for these words of encouragement and these parables of truth. I pray, God, that we would be encouraged this morning, reminded of your great love for us, but also, Lord, that that truth, that knowledge would set us free and embolden us, Lord, to go and love like you love to give grace and to have relationship with those who are still outside of the house that are out in the fields with the pigs or, or, or the lost sheep or one coin that's been lost. Father, give us the same love that you have for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand? We have one last song.